the, the weekend. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is our chance to kind of, anything you heard at church that you thought was a little bit strange or that was exciting and you wanted to pass along, is always helpful. What did you hear? Anything jump out at you? Yeah. temples in place, now let's turn people loose so that we're not just doing doing the work, but we're especially going after those people that we're, we're bringing those names. Awesome. Okay. And by the way, Great Family Search, President Hall, that's on the 7th? 3rd. 3rd. Friday night, the 2nd is the fireside. And the 3rd, yeah. To really kind of gear up on, on that. That'll be in the Plano Sticks. Okay, yeah. Piper? things that happens when we really get discouraged we do begin to think we can't change uh, I remember Elder Holland talking about this, the fact that says if you want to get me mad and one thing that really bothers me is people that say this is just the way I am <laughs> he says that he says that's a uh, I can't remember how he put it um, something like that you, you, they're, they're lazy and they want to call it psychology <laughs> kind of somewhere along those lines. So, okay, yeah. Um, I was re-listening to General Conference, and uh, there was a talk in the first session. I kind of ignored the first time around because it was about the Holy Ghost, and you know we kind of uh, know about the Holy Ghost. Uh, this is a topic I know about, right? Right, right. Anyway, so when I was listening to it, what struck out to me and changed—it was a paradigm shift for me—was when he said, "The Holy Ghost loves you." And wants you to be happy. He knows what your challenges are and what you need to do to return to Heavenly Father. And um, so I thought on that a lot and I realized that the Holy Ghost is actually my best friend. My happiest moments, he's always been there. My yeah. saddest moments when I need comfort, he's, he's been always there. been there. And he told my husband to marry me. <laughs> but, but it struck me that, that he, I guess on some level I wasn't thinking about the fact that he is a Individually, right. separate. And he comes not because Heavenly Father tells him, hey, you got to go. He comes because he, he loves wa- me. Because he, and he wants to be there. Right. Beautiful thought. You remember who what, was, what, was that another Christian? And, and also... If my best friend is telling me things, I don't go, oh, she didn't really say that. Yeah. Or, no, maybe that wasn't what she said after all. And I don't just blow off what my best friend tells me. I like that. Cool. All right. Well, um, glad you're here. Uh, again, if you look around, it's a testament to who you are. On a Monday morning, because you had a, 
Sunday full of meetings, and then it's just like, okay, we want more, so we're coming on Monday morning and just load up a little bit more and get a good jump on the rest of your week. I just think that's fabulous. Um, okay, um, as we get started today, um, I want to I, I want to start with a, a, a little vignette. It's not going to match this yet. In uh, in church from church history, uh, when we got to uh, when the, when the church was on streaming out of Nauvoo and we got up to uh, where, where Winter Quarters is, this is when the United States government showed up and said, hey, we've got a war going with Mexico. We need a battalion of Mormons to go help us fight this war. Uh, it was actually uh, came at the behest of some brethren that were working behind the scenes in Washington, D.C. to try and find a way to help the church financially. And they had, they had told the president we would be willing to send a battalion uh, if, you'll, if you'll pay them. And, and so that's what they did. Now, obviously, if you're the, the husband of a, of a family and you're, and you're getting your family halfway across to the mud of Iowa and, and into Winter Quarters, Nebraska, you're going, I, I, I can't leave. I've got this family. Well, Brigham Young made a promise to the battalion boys, as he called them. If you will go serve in the battalion, we'll take care of your families. Don't worry about it. We'll make sure your families get to where we're going. And, then, and they said, based on that promise, we will go. And off they went. Well, then Brigham Young, uh, we, they get to winter quarters. Uh, first spring, first part of spring, 1847, the wagons start pulling out. They're not exactly sure where they're going. He's got a vision in his head of what it looks like. But off they go. And he organizes it by companies. Well, one of those companies, one of the last ones to leave was Parley Pratt, who was just coming back from a mission, which is what he always did. Uh, Parley Pratt is, in turn, is charged with organizing his company. And then he's going to, he knows Brigham Young is going to beat him out there, and then Parley will follow behind. Well, Brigham had organized his companies based on how many people have I got that are strong, and how many are the families of the battalion boys, so that I make sure these families get out there as well. Parley, when he organized his company, said, gosh, it's kind of late in the season. We've got to really hustle. How about if we have the families of the battalion boys stay here in winter quarters? We'll take the strongest ones, move fast and get out there, and then we'll come back and get them. So what you had was Brigham Young then going all the way out to Salt Lake. He gets there. Brigham Young's only there about three weeks before he turns around and he starts back. We don't always know that that's what he did. He came, immediately came back. Uh, coming across the plains, somewhere we think in Wyoming, here comes Parley Pratt and his company. And so there's this moment where it's like, hey, it's Parley, look at here, Parley and Brigham, and, and he's just thrilled, and it's just Parley's enthusiasm and everything. And Brigham says, great, great, and let's, let's see your company. And then somewhere in here, yeah, Brigham Young goes, where's the battalion boys' families? He said, well, they're still, hey, it's okay. They're back in winter quarters. We took the fast movers so we could get out here. So we're going to have to go back and get them. But here we are. Isn't it awesome? And Brigham Young exploded for hours in front of everybody, as only Brigham could do. Dressed him up one side and down the other. And party was like a little lump next to the campfire uh, by the time that Brigham Young got done. And uh, at the end of that, the measure of Parley Pratt's discipleship 
was the fact that he said, I was severely chastised for hours, and I freely admitted my faults and, and kind of promised to do better. Now, if we look at Revelations 3.19, it says, For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, I guess my question is, as we get started here, how do we react to chastening? Because I started looking up all the chastening things all the way through, and there's a lot. The Lord does a lot of chastening. Why is chastening so critical to us? And why is our reaction so critical? Okay. He sees the gap between kind of where where he sees the the word where he has in mind who we're supposed to be, and he sees us here. And somehow he has to move us from here to here. But wouldn't that be like lovingly kind of just showing us? Chastening sounds like it's a little bit like stop it, knock it out. If, although the, uh, that's right, because the, you could, you should be able to use chastening and instruction as kind of a synonym, they're kind of the same. Except the last time you were being chastened, did you think, well, oh, I'm grateful that I'm receiving this instruction. <laughs> and, I, and I want to be able to utilize this instruction to now change my behavior so that I can get out of better course. I think there's something we forget as we get older that we're still considered children. Yeah. And we no, no, no longer need chasing yeah, and that instructing. That must exist as a child to be happy. The same thing exists as adults. Ah. And that's where chasing comes in. And that's part of the process. That's kind of where I'm going. Yeah. I like the word refining. Because we are, seem to think we are doing okay at this point. Yes, I am. Yes. But we hate to be refined, don't we? Don't we kick back against this refining process? I guess it depends on how quickly we lose our pride, because I think our automatic reaction is going to be. Okay, there's there's the key word, isn't it? Isn't chastening that moment where you find out where your pride is? Isn't chastening the moment that where you get the full measure of your discipleship? Because it's the moment that says, how much of my natural man is still in charge? How much am I still fighting against things? And you may think that you're doing just fine, but the moment that you know is when you're being chastened. And in that chastening, you have to be able to say, okay, 
Time to humble myself. Time to get off my high horse. And it's my wake-up call. I think the natural man reaction is to immediately become critical of the person who is doing the chastening. Why? Why, why if you're being chastened and refined and stuff like that, would you say, you know what? It's actually your fault. It's not your chastening. It's the one chastening. I don't understand why the bishop would say that to me. How dare he do that? Ah, okay. Um, and then you have to take it to the Lord as I face. That's Does that make sense? So, so part of the chastening process may be independent, but, but again, it comes back to our pride level, doesn't it? Because technically, if we are in the wrong, and it doesn't matter whether it's the Lord or the bishop or our visiting teacher, that shouldn't make a difference, should it? If we are wrong, we're wrong. And, we, and, and humbly we accept that but our, because it's our pride it's like well how dare they say that to me you know I am who I am how, how would they do that don't they understand everything the great things I've done um, the natural reaction is to say well who are you to have the authority to tell me so depending oh, on the you have I know the stuff you've been doing how dare you call me on my stuff but saying hey well because you're not perfect Yes, because somewhere in there we should be able to say, okay, the only one that should chasten me is the perfect. Is the Lord. As the Lord can do that. But even, you know what? Sometimes even the Lord doesn't completely understand my whole circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> if, he, if he was doing that, he wouldn't chasten me on that. Yeah. I think we begin at as many as I'm left. If we keep that in mind also, you know, Heavenly Father loves us, and someone had mentioned, you know, we are the and he loves us. It's what the brethren didn't always understand when, when the prophet Joseph told them he said you have to be able to endure chastening because the Lord chastens who he loves but he says the Lord will tear at your very heartstrings, and if you cannot bear it you will not be worthy of the kingdom of God my words but basically that's what he's saying he will tear at your very heartstrings. And some, it's one thing if that tearing at your heartstrings is the loss of somebody that you love or that it, it's, it's something that you care about. But what happens if that tearing at the very heartstrings is the tearing at your very pride? Tearing of who you think you are. And somebody is going to come in, whether it's, whether it's a uh, elders quorum president, relief society president, or a neighbor across the street. And says, who, who has their own imperfections? Or a wife or a husband. Yeah, because I know your stuff better than anybody else. And you're telling me about that. Well, I, I love that, you know, we get our back up, you know. We get stiff necked. Can you, can you picture all those physical reactions that we have to be chastened? And then we kind of get in, into our own little self. And then we're going to throw daggers back. Okay, That's why I want, to, I want to start this today by talking about the fact that I believe that the measure of our discipleship is how well we take chasing. I think it says everything about us and where we are. Um, do you also think the measure of our discipleship is, um, determines whether or not we're chasing? Do you think the Lord doesn't bother with the unrighteous and just lets them... 
get buffeted by Satan, or does he tug at their heartstrings too? Wow. Say, say that. Say that one again, a little louder. Okay. Uh, I, oh, wait a minute. I just organized it the first time. You want me to read yeah. it? <laughs> um, does does chastening depend upon righteousness? Does the Lord just leave the unrighteous to be buffeted by Satan, uh, or does He tug at their heartstrings too? Can I put that differently? Yes. The more righteous I am, the more I will be chastened. And the less righteous I am, the more that the Lord says, I'll just let Satan handle this because you're not going to listen to me in the first place. Or it's not time. Or it's not time. It's not the t- if I try and chase you right now, either you won't hear it or it will drive you farther away. So does that, does that make a certain amount of sense there, buddy? The fact exists probably that the, more you, the closer you get to him, think about Ether 12, 27. If men come unto me, the closer they get... If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weaknesses, and I will feel buffeted and chastened thereby. Does that make sense? So I think that's very true. And we have to be ready for that to, to endure. Or is it that the closer we get, the more we notice our weaknesses because of the greater we are able to see His glory? Let me give you an example of this. One where we go with this. It has to do with Elder uh, Bishop Partridge. Uh, one of the I guess technically be the second bishop of the church. Uh, bishop Partridge, as we've been talked about, was tasked with being the bishop in uh, Missouri. And so he's, he's got all of these people that are struggling to live the law of consecration. It's his job to divide up the inheritances. Uh, and it just ain't going real well. These are imperfect people trying hard to live the law of consecration. And it's one thing to try and decide whether or not you're going to keep the commandments or not. It's, a one, it's another thing if I start messing with your property. And your stuff. And your farms. And, and your land. And how much you're going to have or not have. And so here's this, here's this mild man uh, that Joseph called the, the pitcher of piety. Who's trying to tell people... We need more of your property. No, you only get one cow, not two cows. You know, all of these little nitpicky. Because now you're getting real close to. Well, wait a minute. It's one thing to decide whether I'm going to, you know, have faith. It's another thing if you're going to take my extra cow. So it's really nitpicky time. So here's Bishop Partridge trying to do it, and I think he's kind of frustrated uh, with this whole process. And so here comes Joseph. And, and, he, and they come out to do these series of conferences and talk to the brethren. And Brother Partridge is struggling a lot. And in fact, he's kind of nitpicking along the way. And, and, and Joseph is over here saying, this needs to happen. And Brother Partridge is saying, I'm not sure that I really agree with that. You know, and he's just kind of doing some backbiting and some undermining uh, along, and, he, and it's just kind of starting to build. And he and Sidney Rigdon get at cross purposes. We still don't know what that battle was between Sidney and, and Edward Partridge battling. And so you've got this bishop, who's kind of like the presiding bishop of the church, there's only two of them, who's really kind of ripping on Joseph and ripping on a member of the First Presidency. Not a real great deal. You imagine if, if you had a conference with, uh, I don't know, President Uchtdorf, and he's going, I think Monson's a little off. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. I know he said that, but come on, 18, I have to be 25. 
So, so there was a, a level of confusion going on here. Now, so here comes the uh, here comes the rebuke. I want you to turn to section uh, eighty-five. Part of 85 is going to be given to Joseph and it has to do with those who have given their inheritance to the church, that have consecrated themselves and then they make a decision not to. So they're dealing with some pretty thorny issues. Then look at verse 6. Yea, thus saith the still small voice, which whispereth through and pierces all things. Think about this in terms of answers to prayer. And I was thinking about this yesterday in Gospel Doctrine we are talking about uh, the people that heard the voice of, of the Lord at, at Bountiful after the destruction in the Book of Mormon and all that, and talking about how they felt when they heard the Spirit. Thus saith the still small voice, which whispereth through and pierceth all things, and oft times it maketh my bones to quake, while it maketh manifest. Wow. When you're really kind of that in tune and the Spirit comes, it just kind of shakes. Okay, now. I want to come back to verse 7 in a second. But here's, here's the topper. While that man, and that man is Edward Partridge. This is going to refer to Ed, Edward Partridge. Who was called of God and appointed, who putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God, shall fall by the shaft of lightning, like a tree that is smitten by a vivid shaft of lightning. Okay, now, he's referring to the uh, study of the Ark of God. What, what is that? Those who don't. From the Old Testament. They're moving the Ark, and they don't quite have the temple built yet, but they're kind of moving it from where it was, and it's kind of coming, they put it on, on a wagon instead of carrying it by hand like they were supposed to. So it's in a wagon, it hits a rut, the Ark starts to tip, and Uzzah. Uzziah, okay, who then reaches out. Oh, by the way, I have a photograph of that. I was there. Yeah. Here it is. That's what it looked like. What's he saying? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the... Oh, 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 oh. I think that's like, whoa! In Hebrew. Yeah, yeah, Hebrew for whoa. <laughs> or dang, one of them. Okay, so so in the midst of this, uh, isn't this a pretty well-intentioned act? The ark is about to fall. And he reaches up to try and steady the ark so it won't fall. And, and what does he get for, for this effort? Death. There. Immediate. Which, isn't that a little harsh? He's just trying to help keep the ark from falling over and he gets death in return. What was the problem? Disobedience. Disobedience because they were told, don't touch it. Only the Levites get to touch this thing and those appointed to do this. And the penalty is pretty harsh on this one. Death. Okay? Now, 
There's a, there's a couple points we're going to use. We're going to, this is going to happen twice in the things that we're looking at today. The Lord will use certain imagery, and it's important that you look at the image and, the, and what it suggests to your mind uh, to fill in the whole picture. The symbolism is important, but the symbol the Lord chooses is important too. In this case, he's going to say, in the case of Edward Partridge, he's going to say, that man who pointed to, put his forth his hand to steady the ark of God. Now, based on what we're just talking about, why would he use this image to talk about Edward Partridge? Like you think your way is better than the way that I told you to do. If your way, you may think that your way is better, even if it's well intentioned. Because it wasn't even like Edward Partridge was saying, "No, we shouldn't be consecrating" or something like that. He had at the, there was a well intentionedness to say, "I think this is the best way for the Lord's kingdom to work." Now we never have this problem in the church, right? Nobody is ever well-intentioned enough to suggest that maybe, just maybe, the bishop doesn't really kind of know how, what he's doing here. And we struggle with that. And we put forth our hand to steady the ark. What does that sound like? If someone is doing that, what would that sound like? Put that into words. Spiritual death. It would be spiritual death. There may be a lightning shaft. It would be, it might sound like constructive criticism. Do you mind if I just share something? <laughs> or, generally, my experience with studying the ark is that very often we very rarely go to the ark holders to tell them that there's a problem with the ark, right? Who are we more likely to go to? Friends, family, neighbors. I just can't believe they're doing that. You, you want a sympathetic ear, right? I remember sitting once uh, as a member of a bishopric uh, going to one of my son's baseball games. And, uh, and because we had we managed to construct a baseball team made up about half to three quarters of the kids from our ward uh, and, be able to, and got a guy from our ward to coach the thing. So we actually, it was kind of like a ward party every time these, uh, this little league team. Uh, and so we would sit there and just have a pretty good time. And I remember sitting in front of four ladies uh, who, uh, who spent most of the game just ripping to shreds uh, a very well-meaning scoutmaster who was trying the best that he could to try and do some things with these boys, was spending a lot of time with them, and they just ripped him up one side and down the other that he wasn't getting his Eagle Scout stuff done fast enough. They just ripped and ripped and ripped and ripped. And I just wanted to take, re, walk down to the, the uh, uh, on-deck circle, grab one of the baseball bats, <laughs> and come back and at least threaten. <laughs> you know, he's doing the best he can, dang it! But, they, but you're right, we were finding like-minded people that had an argument about the way he was doing it, and they really went to work trying to steady the scout arc on that Okay? Now, yeah, yeah. Someone who probably opens his mouth too often. Because <laughs> I don't think yeah. I've let Have you ever been accused of opening your mouth too often? I don't think I've let one of those guys by in my life. 
And, and having a word. But I'm curious, why did you go? Nonsense explained to me how do you manage not to go? And actually, he, did he, what I actually ended up doing, because I, I really wanted to hear, first of all, Joseph Smith said once that when, in a criticism or, or chastening kind of thing, he says, when somebody chastens me or criticizes me, the first thing that I, I do is that I check to see how much of that might really be true. And make an honest effort to change those parts of those that would be accurate. And then, because there's, there's going to be a part, and let me just say this is part of a chastening thing. When you're chastened, part of that is going to, there's going to be an element of truth. And I think it's the measure of a disciple to be able to say, you, you're right. This part is true and I need to change this. There are going to be some things that are going to be a reflection of their struggles, and they may not be true. And you're not going to own that part. But, but it really takes a true disciple to say, you're right, this much is really true. And in that case, I tried to listen to what they were saying, and some of it was way off, and I talked to them about it later. But I also wanted to hear the part that I thought, okay, there's some accuracies here. I can't, I'm just not going to dump the whole thing whole cloth. I wanted to hear it first. Yeah. Yeah, a couple things, you know, we were talking before about how much we respect the person when you're chasing them. But bottom line is, if you're a humble person, I'm listening to that. I mean, if, if I'm breaking the word yeah. with them, let's say in a slight way, yeah. and there's some guy, that you're breaking it outright all the time, frequently, yeah. right? And you come and you call me down on it, I can get all defensive, but the bottom line is, I'm still doing it wrong. And even I, I may not respect what you're doing, but it doesn't mean what you're telling me is wrong. Partly because if our natural man is engaged and we're feeling a little defensive about stuff, when the chastening comes, we're usually going to react a little bit more to that stuff that we already know that we shouldn't be doing. So that's when we're going to kind of get more bow up kind of thing because it's like, how dare you call me on the stuff that you, I already know I'm doing. And, sec and secondly, you know, we're talking about um, the, the attitude and all. In President Newport's uh, message, the first president message, is not talking about forgiveness and all. Yeah. And one of the points he makes is that sometimes we don't even, you know, we, we don't have all the information in the first place. That's why we're not supposed to do a lot of judging because we don't know right. everything. And he says sometimes we point where we don't even want to know more information because we want to so true. what we already think. Yeah. I've mentioned before that one of the worst meetings I ever sat in was the one was the transitional meeting with the former bishop and then I was the new bishop and he said, okay, let me go down the list of people I'm working with. And I just went, really? No, really? Oh, and it's like all the stuff I was really glad not to know. Suddenly I now knew and didn't want to know it. Um, okay, now there, let me, in, in conjunction with this though, let me mention one other thing. Two, two other things. Number one, um, we will get wondering about Edward Partridge. How did he handle this kind of chastisement? 1835, here is an unpublished, part of an unpublished revelation of Joseph Smith that didn't end up in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, Behold, I am well pleased with my servant Isaac Morley and my servant Edward Partridge. Because of the integrity of their hearts in laboring in my vineyard for the salvation of the souls of men, verily I say unto you, their sins are forgiven. Isn't that awesome? 
Now, if you look at the top of this section, when was this section given? What year? 1832. You say what month? November. Okay. I want you to fast forward six months from November of 1837 to July of 1833. July of 1833, while they were in the midst of trying to dedicate the temple site in Kirtland, simultaneously the same week, the first mob action will happen in Independence, Missouri. The first thing that will be done is that they will storm into the printing press and they will pull out uh, from the printing press two men, one of whom is Edward Partridge. They will tar and feather uh, Brother Partridge. Uh, they will destroy the press. Uh, the destructions will begin and it will be Edward Partridge who will plead with the mob that said, if you need to kill somebody, kill me and leave the saints alone. And offered himself as a sacrifice. Uh, it was uh, Edward Partridge who would die in Nauvoo at a very early age because of the persecution to exposure that he received in Missouri during the mob. It's one of the reasons why when I'm in Nauvoo, one of the places that I love to go to uh, is Edward Partridge's grave because there is such a sweet spirit, first of all, in that cemetery. And then, and then I just have utmost respect for this man who struggled at this moment, received a chastening rebuke from the Lord, and become one of the great men in church history. I sat in a sacrament in a different ward one time and heard one of his um, posterity give a talk. And it was a valiant testimony, a very really felt the spirit. So these sacrifices aren't just temporary. I feel like our pastor is really blessed for that. They, they get it. Because we move on. And so that's why I'm saying, I guess, to any of us. To me, Edward Partridge is a... Well, we can say, okay, he had his flaws and he had his struggles and he had his moments. And like Harley Pratt, he endured chastening. But it's what we do with the chastening. Are we humble enough? It's the measure of our discipleship to say, I recognize that I will make the changes that I need to make. Yeah? I think it's important to, to learn Yeah. I mean, there's an example of me in my life where it took me 15 years. And someone who I didn't think even had any business chasing me did to me basically what Brigham did to Carly Pratt. I was a lump, I felt yeah. low, and, it was, and I was, it was terrible. But it really took me until very recently to realize that the things that were being said to me were things that I needed to hear. And maybe I didn't think from that, but I needed to hear them at some point. Right. I wish I would have learned. I think we get better. I hope we get better. I, again, I just think it's a, it's a moment if we need a check-in point to say to the Lord, how am I doing? I think the answer would be, how would I handle chasing me? If I'm going to be chastened by somebody, depending on how I handle it, gives me immediate information. Yeah. And I think the youth are watching a lot more than the adults like to say. <laughs> being one of the adults, I can say that now. But the, um, they can tell. They know who's being rebuked. Yeah. And they watch how we respond. And they watch to see how fast they respond with their testimony or their strength or what they want to do. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Okay, well, let, let me point out one last thing and then we'll move on uh, to, to section 87. Uh, because, just as a side note, uh, there's a, the, the verse previous to this 
has brought so much confusion in the church. Um, And it's this. Had he not repented, the Lord said, And it come to pass that I, the Lord God, will send one mighty and strong, holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light of recovering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth, to set in order the house of arranged by lot, the inheritance of the saints. Okay. In other words, if, if Edward Partridge had not repented, this is who was coming. The Lord was going to raise up a mighty and strong one to replace Edward Partridge and, and arrange by lot the inheritances. Now, the, the confusion has been that we know that this is the case, that the Lord would have raised up a mighty and strong one. Will there be another mighty and strong one? Is this a foreshadowing of somebody? It might be. Don't know. But I do know that, for instance, when the prophet Joseph was killed, one of the, one of the potential successors that showed up was a guy that had been a member of the church for like six months, James Strange. Uh, James Strange claimed credit to be a leader of the church based on, in part, this verse. I am He, the mighty and strong one. And I've been raised up at this moment. And it was amazing how many saints actually followed Him to Wisconsin, to, to Voorhees, Wisconsin, uh, and followed Him. And how many, even when we were in winter quarters, there were people being pulled off at winter quarters to go join, join the Strangites. It's a perfect name for them. <laughs> but part of it was, and, and uh, the church records that I kind of looked through this week suggested that there have been at least 12 uh, that they've been able to count kind of uh, charismatic leaders who rose up to say, I am the one mighty and strong to take over the church leadership. And and the latest one being in, in, uh, so beautiful, and I won't take time to read it, there was one in 1908 saying, I am the mighty and strong one and here I am because the church is going weird. And the first presidency in in a First presidency statement written by uh, Joseph F. Smith just ripped him. And, it's just, and I just laughed all the way through the first presidency statement. It's just beautiful. About saying, isn't it interesting that someone would show up without going through the proper church channels? That somehow, if a one mighty and strong was going to show up, that somehow the Lord might let his prophet know that this guy was coming. <laughs> In essence. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So do we as a church not know what that verse might mean? No. No, we know for one one layer of it is the fact that had Edward Partridge not repented that the Lord would have raised another one up. Will there be another one in the future? The the people I'm reading seem to be kind of equal among gospel scholars as to one saying, No, this was this was specific to this case, others saying this is kind of referring to a future time and we just really don't know. But doesn't this happen all the time? I know in Salt Lake I had a guy working for me who didn't like his 70s presidency. And I said, go to the state president and ask him if that's the first people he called or if it's the second. And if it's the second, help them. Because yeah. they, and he went to a state president and sure enough, they, the first people he called to be the leader of that group. It's kind of a roughneck group, group but... You know, you can kind of sympathize with them, but they chose not to be the leaders. And 
these other guys were trying to bring in these seventies and didn't like what they were here? So, I, so the guy that worked for me, Blaine Young, after that, he, he was total support of the presidency. <laughs> so he's like, he just totally turned and said, no, these, these guys aren't first stringers. You know, you got to... Well, the Lord will train up his own. He really I will. I think that happens every time a bishop or someone calls someone in and says, can you do this calling? And they say no. I think, I think that happens so much in the church that it's just... We don't see it because it's so normal to get them. Yeah. And, when, and the bishop, and they know that if it's not the first person they call, they need to help that person extra. And, so and help, help build them up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For that verse, what I see is kind of the thing at the top a lot is that the Lord's work will progress, whether we choose to help it progress or not. There's yeah. a lot of kind of early church or a lot of people that well, if the church is not going to go the way I want to, then I'm going to do everything that I can to destroy it. And they try, and try, and try, and try, but they always fail. And they do massive amounts of damage, but they never have to make Yeah. So when I see that scripture, what I kind of see in it is it's the Lord saying, okay, I have a calling for you. You can either do it to the best of your ability, yep. come to me, ask me for help, and I will make you a mighty and powerful tool in my hands, or I'm going to find someone who will. So I, I like that. I like that. It, 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 it always brings to mind the, the quote the, the, that I love. That just and it's, an, it's actually an old uh, Arabic saying that says, uh, "Despite the barking of the dogs, the caravan moved on." <laughs> Despite the barking of the dogs, the caravan moved on. So the caravan keeps moving, and their dogs just barking and barking, but it keeps moving. And we could get left behind. I have a question. The whole setting of the art um, symbolism really stresses me out. When we as members are taught to sustain our church with yeah. specific phrasing, if we have struggles, and if we pray about something that didn't sit right with us in the general conference, and we pray about it and we receive our own answers, if we go to church leaders, I question, well, what is, am I barking at church leaders if something doesn't sit right with me? But on the other hand, we're not meant to be a church that doesn't have a voice as members either, but I want to sustain my church leaders. To me, it's something that really stresses me out, understanding what is said in the article. At what point am I studying and at what point am I supporting? When I raise my hand to sustain someone, what I feel like I'm saying is, I will do whatever I can to help them succeed in their calling. That means I'm willing to help serve them. And if they call and ask for help, I'm willing to do that. That's what I think sustaining is. President, I was going to I was going to ask you what you your opinion on that. Well, I think it depends on your role and the calling that you're called to. Yeah. If you're a counselor, if you're in a word council, the word council and counseling. You should be giving counsel. When we were trained as a state presidency, we were told that we should be liberal with our opinions. Right. Once a decision is made, and the person holding the keys has made that decision, and then we're kind of... So for you, where is the line between uh, providing counsel and studying the ark? 
when it's appropriate. As part of my calling, I, I'm supposed to get counsel. Right. But if we come to a decision that's not exactly what I thought would be right, we have to be 100% behind it. There's one other thing I wanted to say about uh, being chastened. Yeah, call. yeah. I think we get grumpier. It's either. This is my thing. Maybe. Okay, ooh, such a good discussion. We need to move on. We've got, we got two more other things here we've got to get to. Okay, uh, section 87. I don't think you're grumpy, by the way. <laughs> um, all right. I know. You, uh, the, the reason why you're having a hard time reading this, this is actually a cartoon from 1832. Uh, it wasn't just, it wasn't like I just found like a dumb little cartoon somewhere. Uh, and I'll tell you what it, what it says in just a second. No, I didn't draw this. It would be worse. <laughs> uh, in late 1832, uh, simultaneous with everything else we've just been talking about, uh, the, the United States... Uh, was facing uh, increasing competition from uh, Europe, especially Great Britain, on our on uh, industrial uh, products that they, they, they were headless manufacturing wise, and so trying to protect uh, industry in New England, the United States put some tariffs on, especially on Great Britain, for industrial products, especially farming implements and things like that coming into the country. Tariffs that would make those much more expensive which sat really well with the people in New England, which did not sit really well with the people of South Carolina and in the South, because it raised dramatically at a time when their crop yields for cotton were dropping. It was going to cost them more to bring in stuff from Europe to help farm. Okay, So they went kind of berserk. Uh, and, they, and they actually went after a thing that, by the way, has some real tone for what I've heard, been hearing in political circles in the last couple of years. Uh, and they said, basically, uh, by the way, as South Carolina, this is a club. We're part of a club. If somebody wants to leave a club, they can leave a club. It's up to them. We join the union voluntarily. If we don't like what the rest of the union is doing, we can leave on our own free will. We don't like the tariffs, so we're leaving. And they actually formed in, uh, in uh, December of 1832, or November, the uh, Nullification Act, meaning we nullify everything that the federal government is putting on us, and, and if they're not if they're not going to back off, we're just going to leave the club. We're going to take off. Did they think you were Texas? <laughs> I, I passed a su succeed bumper sticker yesterday. Okay, and I, and I hear some of that now, some of the same rumbling, some of these same arguments. So they, did, so they passed the Nullification Act. South Carolina is almost officially out of here. Okay? Now, the backdrop to that would be that ultimately, while Jackson uh, was putting an army together to come down and put down that rebellion in South Carolina, that he also worked behind the scenes and they were able to soften the tariff thing and got South Carolina to back off for the moment. But it was at the height of all of that that people started asking Joseph Smith, does this mean the end of the Union? Is there going to be a battle here? And that gave us Section 87, which Joseph received 
on Christmas Day, 1832. Now, let me just... uh, Before we just look at this, let, let me just give you as a backdrop. Orson Pratt, Party Pratt's brother, will take this particular revelation... And this will be his missionary track on a 4,000 mile uh, mission that he will go on through all of the uh, through all the east, taking him a couple of years. This is his primary track. He's got the Book of Mormon and section 87, saying there is a prophet among us. And uh, so, let's, and I don't want to spend too long on this because I think there's some some great things coming up. We want to talk about in section 89, but. I want you to kind of see how this works because if you'll hear this for where it is, you're about to see a step-by-step process for what to expect what we, of world history and wars. Okay? Uh, Thus saith the Lord concerning the wars, wars, plural, that will shortly come to pass beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. Did it? Yeah, more than multiple wars. But did, did uh, this is 1832. You're thinking 1861, 30 years later. So what looked like a response to the nullification rebellion of 1832 is actually talking about 1861. So there is a 30 year gap with Orson Pratt running around with this tract saying there's a prophet among us and they're going, it never happened. So there's 30 years that it looks like the prophet with them. I think it just proves that he's a prophet. And I think we better listen to what the prophet's saying right now. Yeah, we're going to kind of go there. Yeah, hang on to that one. Okay, that's where we're going to go. But let's just, real quickly, let me just. Pour through this so you see how this works. Uh, will eventually terminate in the death of misery, and and that time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations, beginning at this place. I don't know. If, this is the nullification Congress, 1832. And what did the Lord just tell you? There's going to be wars from here forward, beginning at this place. This is the start. It begins now. And it will end at the second coming. Continual war. Because watch how, watch how he does this. Uh, for behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states. 1861, right? And the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain. Did they? Yeah. Almost caused a war between... Uh, America and Great Britain because of the embassies uh, going back and forth between Richmond and London. Okay? And, and they were also talking to France. Uh, Southern states will call upon other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called, and they... Now here's where the change comes. Uh, and they shall also call upon other nations... When did, the, when did the mighty nation of Great Britain, of England, call upon other nations? 
Because they didn't do it in the Civil War. World War One. For the first time, you had England, who had the who has ruled Britannia, rules the world with the power of their navy, finally had to say, we're in something way over our head here, and we have to reach out and get help. And it happened in World War I. So we suddenly went from the Civil War to World War I. The Lord is seeing kind of this, this art of wars kind of moving forward. Okay, now... Uh, will call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations, and then war shall be poured out upon all nations. World War II. Okay? And it shall come to pass, after many days, that slaves shall rise up against their masters who will be marshaled and disciplined for wars. What are we talking about? Any ideas? Slaves rising up against their masters? Could be now. We're, so, we're watching that. Even to a certain extent, kind of the Arab Spring is kind of the slaves rising up against their masters. What about uh, the, the fall of communism? What about all that? Every time you just kind of watch dictators kind of get overrun. What about Syria going on right now? Any, oh, you've, got, you've got dictators and their armies and you get kind of this... Rebellion moving up. Think about it again. It happened in Russia. It was the people rising up. Even the Bolshevik Revolution to a certain extent. This is the, supposed to come only the common people rising up against the bourgeois uh, ruling class. So we get this whole history of the people rising up. The French Revolution was that. Okay. Missy Lane is. People rising up. Okay, uh, Marshall discipline for okay, and it shall come to pass also that the remnants. Now, by the way, I would put it that that where are we in, in 2012? Somewhere between four and five. Just my own interpretation, because it shall come to pass that the remnants who are left of the land shall marshal themselves and shall become exceedingly angry and shall vex the Gentiles with a sore vexation. I don't want to spend too much time going on that, but in the Book of Mormon and throughout the Scriptures, when we're talking about the remnant, who are we talking about? The house of Israel. Specifically, who are the remnants? Yes. It's the Lamanites. And the Book of Mormon is full over and over and over that there will be a day when the Lamanites rise up among the Gentiles and crush them. So we're talking about a future day when this, when this will happen. Okay, that's, that's kind of what he's saying there. Now, Would we be considered We get to be with them because we are uh, of the house of Israel. So we're kind of part of that. So we're with them. We're buddies. Do they know that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we just have to remind them. By the way, we're with you. Okay. Manasseh, I get it. Ephraim, Manasseh, brothers. That's what I was 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a partial completion of that. But but in the end, they kind of got stomped uh, with the trail of tears and everything. And which and again, if you go back and kind of read the Book of Mormon, you're really kind of seeing the the revelations about how the Lamanites will then rise up and they will kind of crush the oppressor. That's why I say I wish we had a lot more time to go in to, to that. Uh, but I think that was kind of a partial kind of thing. They fought back. Okay, now, here's the key. And I, I've kind of put these in purple because I want you to see the flow of the thought. Because the main thing here in Section 87 is there's going to be this continual level of war. In fact, I looked at under, uh, I went to the Google and Thumb and looked up all of the wars since 1832, and there's hundreds of wars. Just continual. And you watch all of these cases, and then we're going to get to this point. Verse 6. And thus, and embrace yourself because there's not a, there's a fun little, not fun point coming up here. And thus, with the sword and bloodshed, the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn, and with famine and plague and earthquake and the thunder of heaven and fierce and vivid lightning also. I was thinking about uh, car bombs, for instance, that you just want to watch all of that kind of stuff, okay? Plague and earthquake and thunder of heaven and fierce and vivid lightning. All of these things shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath and indignation and chastening hand of the Lord of, of Almighty God until, this will happen, until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations. Wow. That part of what's going to happen here is that, that the Lord will visit them in great power because of all of this bloodshed. But listen to the kicker here. That what? Verse 7. That what? Yeah. You see that one? The cry of the saints and of the blood of the saints shall cease to come up to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. It's very similar to our gospel doctrine class yesterday, six times in the Savior's Moroni, I have destroyed because that. And that's kind of what I had I put in here. Uh, 3 Nephi 9, 10, 10 11. Um, they did cast the... Uh, Ten, the city of Laman, city of Josh, Gad, Kishkuman, I have caused to be burned with fire, the inhabitants thereof. And, and uh, because of their wickedness in doing what? Casting out the prophets and stoning those I did send to declare unto them concerning their wickedness. And because they did cast them out and that there were none righteous among them, I did send out fire and destroy them, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, that their wickedness and San Francisco, uh, wickedness and abomination shall be hid from my face, and look, that the blood of the prophets and saints who I sent among them might not cry unto me from the ground against them. Now, that was that moment, and he's basically saying the same thing. That the cry of the saints and the blood of the saints shall cease to come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth from the earth to be avenged of their enemies. Now, here's my question. How many missionaries are they killing at the moment? 
How many Latter-day Saints blood is, is crying to the Lord because of the persecution from the world? It ain't happening yet, but it will. Well, and this also goes back to when Joseph Smith went to the you know, president of the United States. Yeah. And the Rome, so there, that was never... Uh, resolved, and so the the you're, we're always for that period of injustice as well. So the Lord is keeping track of. We saw that, yeah. We saw that in Far West. We saw that in Nauvoo. Uh, there, there have been times when the blood of the saints have been there, but we're talking about a period of time as these wars stretch out. That when a world ripens in wickedness, what they do is they begin to to not just ignore the prophets. They begin to kill the prophets. And the, and the story of the Book of Mormon is that over and over and over. Yeah. Well, I think, too, you look at modern times, and I just, like I was listening to Elmer Oaks talk yesterday, day again, and he talked about the children a lot, and um, I, I, you can see where more and more the things that we are saying don't, the world does not agree with. And it's becoming more and more, especially with the gay, gay issue and some of the abortion issues and things like that. You can see where it, the valley's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And over time, there's a lot of hatred that builds up and pain. And you can see where, where it can go with that. The, what do you say? The, the, one of the greatest forms of abuse is not allowing them to be born? Yes. And then he also talked about How dare he say that? Yeah. I looked at an interesting um, graph of um, missions made and missions like dissolved since 2000, and it shows on the earth. And there has not been a single new mission in Europe, but there has been a whole bunch that have been dissolved. So I think we are actually starting to see the casting out. Our missionaries can and are, we're losing missions. Well, allowed. Cannot even convert any more people in that area, really. Now, now yeah. I was also thinking it might be the righteous soldiers that are sharing the gospel in the military. Could be. Yeah, I, I think that... I, you know, I hadn't thought about the abortion thing as the blood of the saints crying up. Actually, they're saints if they were not born or that they were late-term kind of thing. I think about that. That, that could very easily be that. Yeah. Um, I think we tend to think of this as Latter-day Saints, but there are many Christians throughout the world oh, who absolutely. are persecuted. Yeah, absolutely. The, the blood of the martyrs. Uh, boy, we can... Okay, now. Listen to this last phrase that he says, that the, the, blood, the cry of the saints and the blood of the saints shall cease to come up from the earth to be avenged of their enemies. Therefore... And in consequence of all of these things that are coming, Latter-day Saints, here's what he's going to say. Therefore, stand ye in holy places and be not moved. Now, uh, I love, uh, by the way, when I looked over in Matthew 24, it's a little bit different. Listen to what he says. This gospel of the kingdom, verse 14 shall be preached in the world through witness to all nations. Then shall the end come. 
Therefore ye shall see the abomination of desolation, that's the destruction of Jerusalem, spoken of by Daniel, uh, stand, stand in the holy place. Now that's fascinating to me. Talking about standing in holy places, but specifically they're saying stand in the holy place. Of course, back then there was only one holy place, right? How many holy places do we have these days? 100 and yeah, whatever. Although I want you to think one more on this. Elder Lance Wickman. <coughs> Through the years, I've come to appreciate the wisdom of a dear friend, a patriarch, and temple seer. Lance, he said, the joy I receive is more than just being in the temple. The temple is in me. When I leave the temple, its peace goes with me. So it can be for every righteous soul when we visit the temple as often as distance and individual circumstance permit. The temple will be in us. Okay, so in the midst of all of these wars, let me just say, if you're going to stand in a holy place and be not moved, where will you stand? In here. In your home. In the peacefulness that is there. In other words, it isn't like, oh my gosh, it's going really bad, I need to, to, to run down to the temple and, and camp out in the parking lot. Where's the holy place you can be if you're opening up the news and seeing all the wars that are happening? Stand in the peace in here. In other words, this holy place could be this peacefulness inside you that you bring with you. As a, as a result of coming to church yesterday, didn't you pick up a measure of peace? Did you take the sacrament? All those things that prepare. If you're going to hang on to those, we're going to talk about keep and do in just a second. 15 minutes. Keep and do. We're going to keep things inside of us. What we're going to keep is this peace. And it's a place we can go. It's a holy place. Stand there when you're afraid. Stand there when all the world stuff is coming towards us. Stand there when you begin to see saints lose their lives. Because their blood will flow. How much we don't know. But it's certainly being prophesied. Yeah. That's the 2013 theme for you standing in holy places. Is it really? And anything about what we have coming up there, potential solutions and being parents of the next generation. How important is it to teach that to them? That wherever they go, think about these, these precious youth as we get them ready. And, and it's funny, you watch them and it's just the zeal of these 18 and 19 year olds going, we can go now. We're going. This is really cool. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what they're going to, great, let's take it in the middle of all of that excitement and zeal and youth. And then we're going to drop them into a uh, hostile place. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. The knocking on door, people going, no, click, you know, slam, just like, and then, you know, well, we're out on the street again. Yeah. And no, that was. Isn't that amazing? They, they, have, they have excellent, compared to what we have, we were shocked. Oh, man. 
Okay, so, so in other words, there is a way for us to have a measure of peace and safety regardless of what it is that's coming. And it's a matter of being able to build that peacefulness and that holy place in there. kind of comes back to what you're saying about uh, the Holy Ghost is our friend. That we may have a friend with us that can say, it will be okay. I've got you. It's okay. All right. Then, despite the buffetings of life, we will always be in a holy place. Now, I want to do this. Um, let me do this. I want you to turn now to section 89. I don't know if there's anything that distinguishes us more as a church than section 89. The Word of Wisdom. I don't think there is a section in, the, uh, in all of Scripture that has the potential to divide us like section 89. I remember uh, years ago at, at BYU trying to teach a gospel doctrine class and having a... Uh, guy that was really upset by the fact that we'd used white bread in the sacrament. You know, we weren't really using our best stuff. We were using stuff with enriched flour. (laughs) (laughs) Diet Dr. Cooper. So here comes section 89. And, and most of us know the backstory, right? That uh, school of the prophets, uh, the brethren are up there uh, learning about gospel truths, and uh, and they're spitting and chewing their way through gospel discussions, and they're missing the spittoon very badly. And when they ran out of uh, chewing tobacco, they break out the cigars. And so really then, uh, Emma's going to come up after everybody's all gone. See you later, we're out of here. And she goes up there, and it's like the, the wall is brown around the spittoon, and the, the smoke is still ha- hanging heavy in the School of the Prophets area. And she just didn't think this was quite right. So, so we got a revelation because they were mad. <laughs> Ah, so I think, so we don't know the conversation between Emma and Joseph. Uh, I, I imagine there were kind of two levels of that. One was a, have you seen that mess? And I think that's how it started. No, I think there's a, let's find out what the Lord has to say about this. And I think this gave the Lord an opportunity. So I don't think this was steadying the ark at all. Okay. But, but on the basis of this though, again, if you look at the backdrop of this, this is, This is the way that the Lord has always handled His covenant people. Now, incidentally, just just by way of history, uh, at what point did the uh, Word of Wisdom become canonized in the... so that you weren't able... you had to be living the Word of Wisdom completely to be able to go to the temple? About 1912. Is when it really started to be kicked in. Okay, it really came just after the death of Joseph F. Smith and and from the Hebrew J. Grant. Okay, 
did, uh, did the saints take uh, coffee with them as they were uh, crossing the plains? Yeah. Uh, did the saints use uh, uh, wine and alcohol with, in the uh, Masonic Hall in uh, Nauvoo? Yes. Did Joseph nearly end up getting a divorce over the fact that he allowed um, um, Porter Rockwell to try and set up a bar in the novel on the in the mansion house? Yes, he did. This has been a process of kind of. That's why it begins with this process of given as a principle with promise. But I do love the the whole concept. That think how many. Uh, guidelines and commandments are given to us as a principle with promise. That they're, they're general principles that have a promise to them. And we're going to talk about the promise in just a second because uh, the Lord tells us what the promise is. Okay? Now, he's going to go through all of this and I'm not going to take time to uh, go through all, all exactly what is there because we I think... Again, this is, a, this is a topic that has a variety of opinions within the church. And I think we can miss some of the most important points in here because we get caught up over what is, what is a hot drink or what is, whether we should be eating a little bit, bit of meat or a lot of meat or somebody who's a vegetarian is living a little more righteously than somebody that eats a lot of meat. And where does the comma go in the meat thing? Okay, And we miss, I think, some of the... So I, so I want to jump down to verse 18. After we get all of these discussions. And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings. I love that phrase. How many of the principles with promise do we keep and do? For how many of them do we keep but not do? And how many of them do we do but not keep? Can you do a commandment and not keep it? Pay a tithing with bad attitude. I did it, dang it. <laughs> how many people have a testimony of tithing but don't pay it? I'm I think there are times. I have helped people move and grumble through the whole thing. I just thought they should have had everything packed up before I got there. Rather than me having to empty out their drawers. And so I think I kept it, but I don't... Or I did it, but I don't think I kept it. Yeah, and I'm here to. That's right. I think that's a keep. I think that's a keep and do moment. Yeah. Another plug. I've made this before for a great book by the Alan H. Oates called Pure in Heart. Mm-hmm. He has a whole section called Why We Serve and six different reasons that get better and better as you go. And it's all based on the clean hands and pure heart. Yeah. And describing these clean hands and not the pure heart. Right. But and so and what what he'll tell you to do is keep doing right. until you keep it. You know, in other words, it isn't like, well, I'm just not going to do it until I'm ready to keep it. No, 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 no. 
Do it. That's how you'll know the doctrine. Do it. And then as a result of that, you'll, you'll be, begin to keep it. Now, look at what he does here. He's going to say, okay, those who keep and do, even for something that sounds like, really? We're just talking about coffee? Come on. Those who keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel, marrow in their bones, and 19 shall find... Oh, wait a minute. So suddenly we cross out of the physical stuff, because we can quote all day, well, those Mormons were much healthier and happier, and the, and the L.A. Uh, report that just came out and showed that uh, Mormon men lived 10 years longer than non-Mormon men, and it's like, okay, I get all of that. But listen to, we understand that part, but look at what he's saying. Not only do you get that health to the navel marrow to the bones thing, but you'll find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. Why is our spiritual knowledge tied to the physical? Because apparently it is. And how will the spirit help our physical? I mean, the, we're going to find these are tied together. I don't know the answer to that question, but when I was a young girl, my best friend and her family got baptized, but before they got baptized, her father said, I told the story afterwards, that he kept just having this feeling that just kept going on inside of him. The only way he could make it go away was to light up a cigarette. Finally, stirring to the spirit or something. Yeah, yeah. Wow, uh, I love that. Yeah, I can I can medicate away the spirit. It's, it's kind of obnoxious. Funny nicotine does that for me. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, shall run and not be weary. Shall walk and not faint. Uh, now, he's going to use an interesting phrase here. Think about. When the Lord uses a symbolism or a reference, not just the fact that He used it, but why He chose the specific reference. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise. Here comes the promise. Remember the principle with the promise? Here's the promise. I give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass them by as the children of Israel and not slay them. Okay, wait a minute. Which reference? What are we referring to? But before we go there, what are we talking? What reference is he referencing? The destroying angel. Yes. Of all the things he could be using, he's going to say, "Okay, now this is going to be just like Passover, the original Passover." Now think about what had happened at Passover. Okay, Through all of the efforts of Moses and everything, Pharaoh's just being, not letting them go, and they're stuck in Babylon, right? They're stuck in, Zion, in, in Egypt. And they can't get out. And the Lord says, I'm going to do one last thing. And at that moment then, I'm going to send the destroying angel, and it will pass over those homes which... 
have blood on the lintel, blood on the, on the doorpost, okay? And I will see those, I will pass over those and move on. And I will destroy the firstborn. You're going to find deliverance is dependent on the blood of the firstborn. There's a, there's a key there, okay? It's not a surprise. Where'd they get the blood? What were they sacrificing? The lamb. What were they doing with the lamb? They were eating it. It was part of the meal. Remember, the first part of the, what was going on at the moment while the destroying angel was passing by, it was the Passover, It was the first Passover Seder. And was there, was there some directions on what they would eat and not eat during the Seder? For instance, do eat what? Bitter herbs. Actually, more the bitter herbs kind of came later. It wasn't necessarily yet. But specifically, the lamb. Do eat the lamb. Don't eat unclean thing. Do eat unleavened bread. Don't eat leavened bread. Okay? Now, are they going to die at that moment if they eat leavened bread? No, but there was some symbolism being taught about obedience, about what you take in and what you don't take in. That was part of the Passover meal. stuck in Babylon, uh, verse 4, in consequence of the evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men, Babylon. For me, I look at that verse in Destroying Angel, when I read it, what I see is that Satan will pass over us and um, as the children of Israel and not slay us. Yeah. And you think about how many other sins are committed while you're breaking the word of wisdom. How many, t how many, uh, how often is immorality tied to alcohol, right. for instance? Uh, absolutely. And you, and you begin to see this delicate balance between the two. Just basic things. When I overeat or when I stay too late or when I eat things that make me feel sluggish enough, and as a parent, I'm not feeling the spirit, I'm not in my daily choices. Just even basic small things, there is an effect from what we're putting in my body. Can you now begin to see why it is that the Lord prefaces this section and calls this as a principle with promise? Why it is that you begin to say what I eat and how I eat and how I take care of myself. There's a general principle here that says when I do those things that leave me in better touch with the Spirit, 
Now he says you're going to get treasures of knowledge. And even things that may or may not be in the, in the Word of Wisdom. That if it gets in the way of you being able to feel the Spirit, that fits under the principle of promise. That's why I don't get so bogged down so much in this. Here it is a principle with promise. Because if you do, the destroying angel shall pass them by as the children of Israel and not slay them. I will bring you out of Babylon, you and your family, and I'll get you out of there. But I will do it. I'll do it for you. You can't do it because you're not always going to know what conspiring men are doing. But I know them. I know their hearts. I, I will lead you out. Brothers and sisters, this is, if you look at the, the principles that are sitting in here, I just think one of the beautiful things about the Doctrine and Covenants is how specific it gets for our day. And you can see it against the backdrop of very human people like Edward Partridge uh, and Orson Pratt and them struggling to try and understand and do. And it's, it's my prayer that we will keep and do that will keep these things and do them based on what the Lord has told us. And then we will have a holy place to stand in as we watch the royal of wars pour over us that are coming and the sadness that, that, that's out there. Because remember, I understand that there is an Armageddon coming, but there's also an Adam on the We have reason to be hopeful. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs> Dear Father in Heaven, we're grateful for the Spirit that has been here with us to help us look into our own lives and see what we need to change and, and improve on. We're grateful for the Gospel and for the length that we can study it on these, these days. We pray that Thou would please go with us this day and help us to take what we've learned and, and keep and do those things that we we love thee and thank thee for thy many blessings. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Don't remember, don't forget your toys next week. And, and Cecily, you'll definitely be here next week, right?